Very interesting that Eric said, I was waiting for one more line. <laughs> and it's interesting because uh, we always wait for one more encouraging line. And in today's text, there isn't any. I want you to turn to Job chapter 3. Carl Truman, professor at Westminster Seminary, in an article titled, What Do Miserable Christians Sing? (laughs) Writes this. Having experienced and generally appreciated worship across the whole evangelical spectrum, from charismatic to reformed, I am myself less concerned here with the form of worship as I am with its content. Thus, I would like to make just one observation. The Psalms, the Bible's own hymn book, have almost entirely dropped from view in the contemporary Western evangelical scene. I'm not certain about why this should be, but I have an instinctive feel that has more more than little to do with the fact that a high proportion of the Psalter is taken up with lamentation. Feeling sad and unhappy and tormented. In modern Western church, these are simply not emotions which have much credibility. Sure, people still feel these things, but to admit they are part of our normal one's everyday life is tantamount to admitting that one has failed in today's health, wealth, and happiness society. In the last year, I have asked three different evangelical audiences what miserable Christians can sing. On each occasion, my question was elicited, has elicited uproarious laughter. As if the idea of a broken-hearted, lonely, or despairing Christian was so absurd to be comical. Carl Truman's put his finger on something, hasn't he? In modern evangelicalism, there's a sense and even pressure towards Christian triumphalism. There's no room in people's lives for melancholy, let alone despondency. Or depression. Those emotions are viewed both individually and corporately as some sort of deficiency. That there must be something wrong. That your faith is weak. Are you even a Christian? 
After all, we're supposed to be joyful 98% of the time, aren't we? That's simply not a realistic picture of our lives, is it? There are peaks. Thus, necessarily, there are valleys. So, what do miserable Christians sing? They sing Job 3. Look with me at Job's words. Starting in verse 3, Let the day perish on which I was born. In the night that said, A man is conceived, let that day be darkness. May God above not seek it, nor light shine upon it. Let gloom and deep darkness claim it. Let clouds dwell upon it. Let the blackness of the day terrify it. That night, let thick darkness seize it. Let it not rejoice among the days of the year. Let it not come into the number of the months. Behold, let the night be barren. Let no joy cry enter into it. Let those curse it who curse the day, who are ready to rouse up Leviathan. Let the stars of its dark dawn be dark. Let it hope for light, but have none, nor see the eyelids of the morning, because it did not shut the doors of my mother's womb, nor hide troubles from my eyes. Why did I not die at birth? Come out of the womb and expire. Why did the knees receive me? Or why the breast that I should nurse? For then I would have laid down and been quiet. I would have slept. Then I would have been at rest with kings and counselors of the earth who rebuilt ruins for themselves or with princes who had gold who filled their houses with silver. Or why was I not hidden, stillborn child as infants who never see the light? There the wicked cease from troubling, and there the weary are at, west, are at rest. There the prisoners are at ease together. They hear not the voice of the taskmaster. The small and the great are there, and the slave is free from its master. Why is light given to him who is in misery, in life to the bitter soul? who long for death, but it comes not, who dig for it more than for hidden treasures, who rejoice exceedingly and are glad when they find the grave. Why is light given to a man whose way is hidden, whom God has hedged in? For my sighing comes instead of my bread, and my groanings are poured out like water. For the thing that I fear comes upon me, and what I dread befalls me. I am not at ease. I am not quiet. I have no rest, but trouble comes. 
Spirit, I pray that you help to form us through this difficult text. We rely on your power to do that. In Jesus' name, amen. Eric Ortland has written, this chapter is a photographic negative of worship. A photographic negative of worship. Despondency is certainly part of the worship, Christian's worship experience, part of our life experience. But it's usually never seen, is it? It's, it's hidden away. It's tucked beneath our saccharine smiles and our light laughter at Coffee Fellowship. But it is there in each one of our lives. We walk through valleys, don't we? We fall into sloughs. Some more than others for various reasons. And the Bible does not hide these emotions. As we see here boldly in chapter 3. This chapter is, is widely considered one of the low points of scripture emotionally. That along with Psalm 88 in which we, we read together. Perhaps Jonah's cry in the belly of the whale. Certainly some of Jeremiah's experiences. Certainly in chapter 20 of Jeremiah where he's in the stockade crying out much like Job. Certainly we see that with, with our Lord and Savior in the Garden of Gethsemane. All these have hopeless language. Just look here, verse 3. Job regrets the day he was born. Have you ever thought or, or even dared to speak that? Look at verses 11 and 16. The image is even more stark. I wish I was stillborn. I wish I came out and died. My life is so terrible right now. I wish I had been born and died. Verse 20. He's longing for death. And look at the, look at the last verse. I am not at ease. Nor am I quiet. I have no rest. But trouble comes. Hard stop. We want it to continue. Where is the next slide? But we're left in the pit. No praise. No relief. No ray of hope. No messianic rescue. Because that's sometimes how we feel. So what do we do to do with a chapter like this? How are we to, to grab hold of this and make it useful in our lives? Well, 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All scripture is what? God breathed and is useful for teaching and rebuking and correcting uh, and training in righteousness. And so that is our outline. 
What does this text have to teach us? How is this text going to rebuke us? How is it going to correct our thinking? And how is it going to train us for righteousness? Well, I think we do learn these four things from Job's deep lament. And the first one is the lament teaches us to enter into people's pain. Enter into people's pain. I want you to pick your Bibles up once again and look back a few verses into chapter 2, verse 11. And there we see that, that Job's three friends have come to comfort him. Read along with me. Now when Job's three friends heard all of these evil that had come upon him, they came each of from his own place. Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuite, and Zophar the Namanite. They made an appointment together to come and show him sympathy and comfort. And when they saw him from a distance, they did not even recognize him. And they raised their voices and wept, and they tore their clothes and sprinkled dust on their heads towards heaven. And they sat with him on the ground seven days and seven nights. And no one spoke a word to him, for they saw that his suffering was very great. Some disagreement about what the friends are doing here among interpreters. Some see that these friends are coming to actually prepare for his death. The seven days being the traditional mourning period, the wake, the, the, the tearing of the clothes, the weeping, and the, and the ashes on the head are symbolic of death. This could just be it. They could just be coming and waiting for him to die. After all, he was... Because of the health, his health was so racked by Satan that they couldn't even recognize him. You would expect somebody to die. But at the very least, at the very least, these are, are his friends and they care about him and they travel a great distance just to be with him. Just to be with him. They sit silently for seven days. And it says they came to show sympathy and comfort. How did they show that? And it says through silence. They came and were just with him. Silently. Sometimes the most helpful thing, a brother or sister who is in the pit, the most helpful thing we can do is just be with them. Just go and be with them. I remember one of my mentors told me, Blake, you don't always have to talk. You know, you can bless somebody just with your presence. Some of the wisest things that spoken into my life has helped me to be a better pastor. Sometimes the most helpful thing we can do is just be there. No trite sayings. Let go and let God. Don't say that. No pep talks. In a sermon titled, Man Unknown to Man, Charles Spurgeon said, Allow no ungenerous suspicions of the afflicted, the poor, and the despondent. Do not hastily say they ought to be more brave and exhibit a greater faith. No, I beseech you, remember that you understand not 
your fellow man. You know, sometimes it's appropriate to even refrain from quoting Scripture. You know, we are so quick with Romans 8.28. It all has purpose. We're so quick with 1 Corinthians 13.10. He won't give you more than you can bear. We're so quick with, with Matthew 5, 4. You know, you're mourning, but he promises to bless you. We're so quick with those things. We're so quick with the John 16, In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I've overcome the world. Those are all true and wonderful and good and encouraging. They're words of God. They have their time and they have their place. But sometimes what sufferers need is a healthy dose of Romans 12.15. Mourn with those who mourn. Just go. Just be. Joseph Carl in his commentary wrote on Job, he said, When a man is resolved to mourn, let him mourn. Your advice might anger him, but it will not help him. Let sorrow have its way a while, and that will make way for comfort. Sometimes those who are suffering greatly, who are in the pit, who are stuck in the slough, just need you to be there. And maybe some of us today just need to hear that encouragement to go and be there. Because it's hard to go and just be there. Empathizing, enter into the suffering with them. That's what his friends did. And you know what? I think that's exactly what Jesus wanted from Peter, James, and John in the Garden of Gethsemane, don't you? Just come and watch with me. Don't say anything. Don't quote my words back to me. I just need you to be with me. Because that's part of the gospel, isn't it? The gospel is incarnational. What we do, everything we do as Christians is incarnational. Do you know what that means? It means you're with, you enter in, you're physical. Why do we stop the live stream? Because what we do is incarnational. Why don't we just only drop a text to somebody who's suffering? Because maybe the Lord is saying, no, you need to go be there. Because that's part of the gospel. We're just entering Advent season, aren't we? <laughs> what is Advent? What is Christmas? It's the incarnation of Christ. He entered in to our pain. He entered in with us so that he could be a high priest who could empathize with us. So by entering into people's pain, we can be just like our Savior, can't we? It's a beautiful thing.
Second, we need a rebuke. Job 3 rebukes us of our notion of Christianity. Of our notion of Christianity. In John Bunyan's classic, Pilgrim's Progress, if you remember, Christian and his friend Pliable are crossing a plain when they suddenly fall into a miry miry bog called the Slough of Despond. They both struggle for a long time in thick mud, and Christian slowly begins to sink because of his burden. But as Pliable struggles, he becomes more and more angry, and he becomes more and more angry because this isn't the happy journey that Christian promised him when he said, come with me. Eventually, Pliable fights his way out, and if you remember, he returns home. After a long time, the man named Help comes along and pulls Christian out of the slough. When Christian asks Help why nobody has gotten rid of this dangerous bog, do you remember what he said? He explains that it can't be removed because fears and doubts naturally accompany faith. And they accumulate here. That's sometimes why we fall into the slough. It's part of our faith. There is going to be fear that comes along with it. There is going to be danger. There is going to be loneliness. And sometimes it accumulates to such an extent that we fall into it. Brothers and sisters, despair and depression are part of the Christian experience. It's part of it. They're not four-letter words let alone never to be experienced. That's what we see here in Job. That's why Job is in our canon. Chapters 1 and 2, you remember Job went through unimaginable suffering. Do you remember that? Imagine losing everything you have, all your wealth, and you're on the street. Bad enough. And then... You get so sick that you're disfigured and you're scraping these sores and breaking them open because they're so painful and they're running on your body. And that's not enough. Somebody come and tells you your whole family's wiped out. Dead. That's awful. We can't even imagine it. Again, I want to remind us, this is not mythology. This happened. And yet, we have the most staggering faith that is almost not seen in Scripture here. I mean, let's just remind ourselves what he said. Naked I came into my, from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return. Oh my goodness, are you kidding me? Imagine saying that. Imagine the slough that you've been in at one time in your life and saying that. The Lord gave and the Lord take away. He took away everything. You're on the street and you say the Lord gave and the Lord take away. And your family's wiped out. And you say, shall we receive good from God and not evil? He suffered, trusted, and turned to God. 
And that should be it, right? Shouldn't the book of Job stop there? Right? There's, is, is there another slide? That's how the Christian life works. I suffer. I turn to God. I say some of those words. And it's all right. Wrong. That's a two-dimensional faith. Two-dimensional faith. And what Job 3 does is it gives us the third dimension. Just listen to him. Let the day perish on which I was born. Let that day be darkness. Let no joy cry enter into it. Why did I not die at birth? Our notion of Christianity has to be robust enough to carry the weight of those things. Does that make sense? It has to be large enough to be able to say those things, allow our hearts to talk those things. We have to be able to hear those things from other people and not judge. We have to be able to think these things and not feel guilty. We have to be able to say some of these things and not feel as though we're less of a Christian for saying them. Commentator Christopher Ash writes this, Job 3 is a very important chapter for contemporary Christianity. There's a version of Christianity around that is shallow and trite and superficial and happy-clappy. It's a kind of Christianity that would have Jesus singing a praise chorus at the grave of Lazarus. We've all met it, he says. It's Christian triumphalism. We sing of God in one song that in his presence our problems disappear, and in another, my love just keeps on growing. Neither is true in Job 3. And yet, he was a real, faithful Christian. So we ask again, what do miserable Christians sing? Does your faith have this category in it? Is your faith three-dimensional or or just two-dimensional? Chapter 1 and 2 make it overwhelmingly clear that Job is blameless and upright, who fears God and turns away from evil. It said at the outset, God himself repeats it twice. And I hope you remember back in my first sermon in Job when I said, this is important to remember as we go through Job. Job is a real Christian. He's not less of a Christian. And yet he says words like this. Because our natural tendency when we read this is to think Job is sinning, isn't it? Pastor, just show me the verses where I... Job should have repented. We'll read the rest of the book. Perhaps you have already. And sometimes he is. 
We find at the end of the book that, that after God appears to Job and talks to Job, what does Job do? He, he repents. Sometimes we do cross that line. But not here. Brothers and sisters, we have to have room for sinless depression. There is room for sinless depression. The Psalms are filled with it. If you're a Psalm reader, if you go through McShane's where you're reading a Psalm a day, you know it. So I ask you again, do you have a category in your Christianity for despair and depression and despondency? If not, then perhaps we need a little correcting. Job 3 helps us do that too. Helps us realize that not all despair is sinful. Not all despair is sinful. Those of you who read Anne, have read Anne of Green Gables, know that in one of her more dramatic moments, and she had several, she declares that she is in the depths of despair. I'm in the depths of despair. She turns to Marilla, her adoptive mother, and asks, Have you ever felt like that, Marilla? Do you remember what Marilla says? No, no, never. To despair is to turn your back on God. Untrue. That is simply not true. Depression is not a sin any more than happiness is a righteousness. Despair, depression, despondency have many causes. Past trauma, current grief and suffering, unmet desires, unfulfilled longings. And sometimes, brothers and sisters, there are people that are born that are just born like that. And yes, your depression and despair can go over the line into sin. Yes, it can. But just like it says, in your anger, do not sin. In your despair, don't cross that line. You can blaspheme God and need to repent. You can cross the line into faithlessness, self-pity, martyrdom, sinful anger. We see that at the end of Job again, he had to repent. But not all despair is sinful. There is a place to express how your heart is honestly feeling with words that sound like this. Expressing your feelings of isolation or of loneliness or fear, unmet longings. It was interesting as I was reflecting on this. In, a, in one sense, we should all feel like this. We should all have this as we bump up against the broken world that is 
and long for the renewal that will come. We should all be saying words like, How long, O Lord? It's part of the Christian experience of just waiting for the Lord to to come. How long, O Lord, will these broken relationships exist? How long, O Lord, will justice be perverted? How long, O Lord, will the wicked prosper and the righteous not? There's a place to cry out like the psalmist. I'm weary of my crying out. My throat is parched. My eyes grow dim from waiting on my God. There's a proper place for our despair that is not sinful. We see that throughout Scripture. King David could probably be put in the category either of schizophrenic or melancholy. He wrote half of the Psalms, many of them laments. And there's Elijah expressing his, his heart in frustration after his great victory on, the, on Mount Carmel over the prophets of Baal. He, he flees. And his words, he says after that, I have had enough, Lord, take my life. Have you said these words? Do you have a category for these words that Elijah spoke? I am not better than my ancestors. Paul voiced his despondency and despair in ministry. Second Corinthians, he wrote to them, For we do not want you to be unaware, brethren, of our affliction which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened excessively beyond our strength. By the way, this is the same person that wrote, He will not give you more than you can bear. Beyond my strength. So that we despaired even of life. And we only have to go to the Garden of Gethsemane to realize this is the heart of Jesus then. He told Peter, James, and John, My soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Brothers and sisters, not all feelings of depression are sin. There is a place for you to give words for your feelings, even if they are feelings of despair and hopelessness. It's okay to sit with a close friend, to sit with your spouse, to sit with your teenager, and just listen to them say things that their heart are feeling and not think less of them. And not come alongside and say, are you sure you want to say that? Allow them to verbalize. Give room for their fears and anguish. And what is wonderful about our God is his word helps us. Because he gives us a vocabulary to say them. And that's how we're trained. He's giving us a biblical Vocabulary for despair. Carl Truman, once again, in What Do Miserable Christians Sing, writes, First, let us all learn once again to lament. Read the Psalms over and over 
until you have a vocabulary, a grammar, a syntax necessary to lay your heart before God in lamentation. If you do this, you will have the resources to cope with your own periods of suffering, despair, and heartbreak, and to keep worshiping and trusting even in the blackest of times. As I said earlier, outside of our Lord, Job 3 is perhaps the deepest slough anyone has fallen into in Scripture. He has lost everything. And so his words of despair are great because his loss is great. Should we run to Job 3 when we stub our toe? No. What, should we run to Job 3 when, when our car won't start and we miss an appointment? No. Should we run to Job 3 when we lose a child? Maybe. Sometimes our despair is so great, we need to express it in stark terms. I've never been in a pit as low as Job. I don't know if you have. I don't know. But maybe some of you have. There's some great loss in your life, a divorce, loss of a child, loss of a spouse in the prime of their life. And perhaps some of these words would be appropriate for you to express and to say out loud to others, for others to hear. See, the Bible has these words here to inform our our vocabulary to help put those guardrails on our tongues, to give us words to say, to help us express biblically what our hearts are feeling, to allow us to mourn deeply, yet not sin. So, brothers and sisters, I want to leave you with an assignment. Job chapter 3 gives us perhaps some of the darkest vocabulary of despair in the whole of Bible. But there are many places to go in Scripture to find those words that we need to use at our sloughs of despond. Especially the Psalms. Those are come to mind very readily. John Calvin described the Psalms as an anatomy of all parts of our soul. So take some time this week. If you're a journaler, open your journal. If you're not, get a piece of paper. And write down some biblical words that you can use at your times of great despair and despondency. Some phrases that you can express biblically what you're feeling in your heart. Perhaps some like Psalm 71:12, O God, be not far from me, O God, make haste and help. Or perhaps Psalm 38, 9 and 10, O Lord, my heart throbs, my strength fails me, and the light of my eyes, it also has gone from me. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? Perhaps that expresses your heart. 
The cords of death encompass me. The torrents of destruction assail me. I am poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint and my heart is like wax. These and others will help to give you a biblical vocabulary when you are in despair, in the slough. It'll put those guardrails on your tongue so that you can express to God your heart yet not sin. By hiding these words in our hearts, we can follow the example of Christ on the cross, can't we? It's exactly what he was doing when he was nailed to the cross. Do you remember the words? Oh God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was using the Bible. Except, he wasn't just feeling it. It was really happening. God was really forsaking him. And that's what we remember at the Lord's Supper. That's what this table is helping us to do. He was really forsaken so that we could be accepted. He was really separated from God so that we would not. He was really punished so that we would not receive that punishment. He really died so that we might live. As we enter the Lord's table, I want us to take a few moments silently before we break the bread and drink the juice to contemplate Christ's Job-like actual suffering that he went through. Let's take a few moments.